let's open up our Bibles once again to the book of Matthew as we are making our way verse by verse through the New Testament. We arrive here at the last several verses of chapter 15. Now, the plan of God that we see from the very beginning, it, it takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, is that God was going to bring a second Adam. And the second Adam was going to fix the mess that the first Adam had created. And as you continue through the Old Testament, the identity of this second Adam begins to come into focus. We learn things in the Old Testament that he's going to come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fascinating that the king of Israel would end up being the savior of the non-Gentile or the non-Jewish world, the, the Gentiles. And then we begin to learn things about where he's going to be born and where he's going to operate and so forth. And then, and then we learn things about him not really having that easy of a time. He's going to be a man of sorrows. He's going to be acquainted with grief. He's going to understand rejection. And what the Old Testament was prophesying is that Israel would reject their Messiah. He's not the Messiah that they were wanting. And we're beginning now, as we make our way through Matthew, we're beginning to see the early stages of that taking place. We are probably six, seven, eight months away from the crucifixion of Christ. But what God did with Israel rejecting the Messiah is that he then turns to the non-Jewish world. And we're seeing shadows of that. We're seeing pictures of that now in Matthew's gospel. Now, the Apostle Paul, he explained it this way. He said, look, God is like the trunk of a tree. God's the trunk of this olive tree. And you've got these natural branches that are connected to the trunk. That's Israel, his ancient people. They are the natural branches that should be connected to him. But because of their unbelief, he rips these branches off. And then Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11 that what God did is that God went and found the likes of you and I. And he calls us wild branches. We were wild branches connected to something else other than God. And then Paul tells us in verses 19 and 20, you will say, now he's writing to Romans. He's writing to the Roman church, non-Jews. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty. Don't think you're some awesome thing. Be humble. But fear, have respect for God, that the rejection of Israel, of their Messiah, has opened up the door for the likes of you and I to be made right with God. We had already read this prophecy earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, that, that in his name, the non-Jews are going to trust. Now, we have not replaced the nation of Israel. We have joined Israel. We've been grafted in. We've been grafted in with faithful Abraham. We've been grafted in with Jeremiah and David and the apostle Peter and Saul of Tarsus. We have joined believing Israel. And what we are seeing developed in our study in Matthew is that slowly but surely, the rejection of Israel is intensifying. And as that rejection intensifies, 
Jesus now is beginning to turn his attention to the non-Jewish world. Remember, in the beginning, he was very dogmatic to the disciples when he sent them out. He said, now, don't you dare go outside the boundary of Israel because I have been sent to the children of Israel. I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And so that's going to be our focus. But as Israel now more and more goes on record to show the rejection of God's king and their Messiah, the Lord now turns his attention to non-Jews. Now, the last time we were together, you remember that Jesus was up in the area of Tyre and Sidon. And so we're going to we're going to pick it up. Now, this is in the area of, of what we would know as Lebanon. And now where he's going to go is in uh, the area of, of Jordan. And so verse 29 sets this story up for us. And we read this, that Jesus departed from there. That'd be Tyre and Sidon. And he skirted the Sea of Galilee and he came up on a mountain and he sat down there. And then notice there was a great multitude that came unto him, having with them the lame... The blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at the feet, Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now, Mark, in his telling of this story, in chapter 7 of his gospel, he gives us some detail there. And he tells us, among other things, and again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. So what Matthew and Mark are both talking about is that the lion's share of the time of Jesus's three and a half year earthly ministry, it was spent in the region of Galilee. Now, every now and then he would travel south. He would go into Judea. He'd go to Jerusalem for the feast days. But by and large, his ministry was in the north, in the area of Galilee. Last time we were together, he leaves Galilee and he travels 30, 40 miles to the northwest to Tyre and Sidon. And there, you remember, he ministered to a non-Jewish woman. Now what happens here is that he leaves Tyre and Sidon and he skirts along that northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee and he goes into Decapolis. Now Decapolis was a federation of 10 cities. It was really established under Roman control about 60 years before uh, the coming of, of Christ. This was a territory that was very loyal to Rome. They had a lot of retired military there. This is a very pagan place. As I say, it's in the region of the Jordan. And um, uh, Warren Wiersbe, he tells us that the 10 cities were in a league. And they were authorized by the Romans to mint their own coins, run their own courts, have their own armies. This was predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish territory. So this is a very pagan place. This is a place that most religion, religious Jews would steer very clear of. Now, what Christ is doing is that he's training the 12. These guys are going to take over in, what, six, seven eight months. And so these final months of the earthly life of Christ, he is pouring into these 12 guys. He's got to get them ready. They are nowhere near being ready for the calling that God has upon them. 
And one of the things that they don't understand is that God is deeply interested in every human being. God is not just interested in the religious Jew, but he is pounding into these guys' heads that these people that you think have spiritual cooties are important to God. And we need to be preaching uh, the gospel uh, to them. And so he heads now into this very pagan place and we are told in verse 30, now notice that there was a great multitude that was there. And as we're going to see, this is a huge gathering of people. And there is a long line where they are bringing uh, their sick, they're bringing the disease, they're bringing uh, those that have physical disabilities, and they're just sort of laying them before Christ. Now, what is interesting is that this is not the first time that Jesus has been in this area. And what I find fascinating, you remember back in chapter eight, he was in the city of Gadara, which is one of the 10 cities. And in Gadara, you remember that there was a problem child that was there. Remember that guy running around the community naked, living in the graveyard? Now, you run around town naked and you're living in a graveyard. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a problem child, right? And you remember that Jesus... Uh, delivered this guy from this demonic bondage that he was in. Now, what's fascinating about that story is that the demons prayed. They prayed to Jesus. They had a request for Jesus. And they said, permit us to go into the pigs. And Jesus said, you want to go in the pigs? Fine, go in the pigs. And they went in the pigs. He answered their prayer with a yes. Then the townspeople, you remember, they said, look, we don't want this. We don't want you here. We don't need this kind of disruption. Please go away. They're making a request. They're praying to Jesus. Go away. What does Jesus do? He gets in the boat and he goes away. He answered their prayer with a yes. Well, then you got the problem child. He starts crawling into the boat with Jesus. And Jesus says, uh, where are you going, boy? And uh, he said, I'm, I'm going with you. And uh, permit me that I go with you. And Jesus said, no, you're not going with me. Get out of the boat. And you tell these people, you tell anybody that will listen what God has done for you. Isn't that interesting? You've got three prayers. Two are answered with a yes. One's answered with a no. And the guy that gets the no is the only decent guy in the story. The two bad groups, they're told yes. You see, we have to understand that God is not an idiot. Right? God has a plan. And when you and I believe that, well, God is not answering my prayer and God is not opening the door that I want him to open up and we begin to cop an attitude towards our father, what is your problem? Do you not love me? Do you not care about me? We have to understand that he knows far more than any of us here. And if he is answering your prayer with a no, there is a reason for it. Because what does this dude do? He goes out and he was faithful, obviously faithful to the call of God. And he was telling anybody that would listen what God had done for him. And now this community 
instead of rejecting Christ, now this community is excited that Christ is coming back and they're welcoming him with open arms. Look at what God did to the problem child. Yes, I want him to work in my life as well. And there is, there's now thousands of people that are lining up in order that the God that fixed the problem child would also be at work in their life as well. Now, it's interesting, we're told, among other things, that they brought those who were maimed. Now, that Greek word is kulos, is how you pronounce it, and it's a word that Matthew will use later on, we'll get to it in the weeks ahead, in chapter 18, when he records the words of Christ, when Christ says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off, cast it from you. What a sight. Whack it off, throw it away from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed. That's our word, kulos, right? So it's a word that speaks of a missing limb, whether by disease or accident or birth defect. They're bringing people to Christ who are amputees, they're missing feet, hands, legs, arms, whatever. They're laying them before Christ and Christ is healing them. What did that have to look like? What must that have looked like that you've got hands and feet that are popping on to these people and now you've got these pagans that are being blown away by the power of God. And so what happens in verse 31? And the multitude, they marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed being made all, hands and feet popping back on these people, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified, notice, the God of Israel. So this is letting us know these are not, these are not Jews. Otherwise, they'd say, well, they're glorifying their God. But rather, they're glorifying the God of, of Israel. These are, these are non-Jews. Now, we're told here that they marvel. That word marvel, it means to hold somebody in admiration. They're just blown away. They're watching this. And they're, wow, this is incredible. What, what a miracle worker. Now, again, going back to the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us in chapter 7 that they were astonished beyond measure, which means there is no human explanation. We're watching this, we're seeing this stuff happen, and we got no clue as to how in the world uh, this works. This is absolutely amazing. And their testimony, these are pagans, their testimony about Christ is that he has done all things well. Now listen to me. That is gonna be your testimony in the future. Whether you wanna believe it or not, the day will come where you and I are going to be standing on that glassy sea before the throne of God. And our testimony in that hour will be, behold, he has done all things well in my life. You and I, we, we are at such a disadvantage. You and I, we don't see everything. We don't know everything. Now look, again, if God is God, if God is who he is being described as in the scripture, then we know one thing about him. He's not an idiot, right? He knows all things. And when we stand before that throne, 
the pieces of the puzzle, they're going to start snapping together, and we're going to, all of us, it's going to be a great ah moment for us as these mysteries in our life. Why did this person have to die? Why did I have to go through this? What was going on with that? Look, God loves you, and God is a genius. He loves you, and you are loved by this genius, and he knows what he is doing in your life. You remember the Apostle Paul. This is a guy who lost everything, including his head. He lost everything because of his commitment to Jesus Christ. And he declares in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, he uses that word worthy. That means of equal weight. What he is talking about, you take a balanced scale, and on one side of that balanced scale, you put everything that your commitment to Christ has cost you. What has your faith cost you? Maybe it's cost you a friendship. Maybe it's cost you a job. Cost you whatever. But you put that on one side of that balance scale, and on the other side, you put the glory that is going to be revealed. You put the reward that is going to be yours in heaven. And what this man who lost everything, including his own life, what he said is that they are not of equal weight. They are not of balanced weight. And so for you and I, as the followers of Christ, we've got to chill out. I can't tell you over the years. How many times I've had to apologize to my heavenly father and just ask for forgiveness. I am so sorry that I disrespected you. I am so sorry that I treated you like a fool, that I thought of you as being an idiot. God, you knew what you were doing. Please forgive me. I am not your counselor. I am your servant. God loves you and he knows what he's doing in your life. Submit to the will of God. Then notice what Jesus says in verse 32. He called his disciples to himself and he said unto them, I have compassion on the multitude. Now get a load of this because they have now continued with me for three days. They've been, they've been out in the wilderness for three days. Right? This is a huge long life. They want to get to the miracle worker. Well, it's, it's going to take a, take a while to get there. And so they're there for three days, and notice they got nothing to eat. Now, I imagine when they left the house, maybe they had a Twinkie, maybe they had a little bit of beef jerky, I don't know. But now, after three days, they got nothing. Notice the heart of Christ here. Notice that we're told here, and I do not want to send them away hungry. This is the heart of Christ. He is a need-meeting God. And I don't want anybody to accuse me of sending them away hungry. I've got compassion. I want to meet their needs. I want to bless their lives. And so therefore, I don't want them to go away hungry because I don't want them to faint in the way. Now look at what the 12 geniuses have to say. And then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude. Gee, I wonder where we're going to come up with the resources to feed such a crowd. Wasn't it like a week ago he fed the 5,000? 
And now it, it's totally lost on them. G. Campbell Morgan, he says, what a marvelous exhibition we have of the slowness of faith in these disciples who, notwithstanding what they had seen the master do with five loaves and two fishes among 5,000 men, yet questioned him how they could feed a smaller crowd, 4,000 men, with more supplies, seven loaves and a few fish. Yet are we much better than they? How often past deliverances seem to have no power to deliver us from present anxiety. How many of us, we have walked with Christ for decades. This room is full of incredible testimonies where God has blessed you, God has worked on your behalf. You look back and you see how God has been alive in your life. And now you're gonna run into a little bit of trouble this week and you're gonna cry like a little girl. Oh, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Oh, I'm gonna die and all of this stuff. We act like we have been abandoned uh, by God. And that is what these guys uh, were acting like. Now, again, Christ is pouring himself into these guys. Christ is trying to teach them the lesson that he is sufficient, that he will supply the need. They go, they just need to be obedient. You be obedient and God will direct and God will meet the need. Again, where God guides, God provides. And we have seen him do that in this church in just incredibly marvelous ways. Well, then notice in verse 34, and I imagine Jesus rubbing his forehead at this point. And Jesus said to them, all right, Let's go over this again. How many loaves do you have? And they said, well, we got seven and we got a few. Now notice, not fish. we got a little fish, little fish. And we got a big crowd. Not sure how this is going to work, Lord. Uh, so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish. He gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to the disciples. And his disciples gave gave to the multitude. And so as they ate, and notice again, they were filled, the same word that we had with the five, they're glutted. This is a fish sandwich buffet. And these guys are pigging out and they can't eat any more in the wilderness. Here it is, they're glutted. And they took up seven large baskets full of fragments that were left. And those that ate, were 4,000 men beside the women and the children. Now, there are Bible scholars. I don't, I don't know where they come up with this, but they, they suggest that, well, this is actually a repeat of the earlier miracle that Jesus did, that the feeding of the 4,000, there's actually been some sort of copyist error going on here. And uh, it's, it's just kind of a repeat of that earlier uh, that earlier miracle. And you, you wonder, what in the world are you talking about? Now, it, with the 5,000, it was predominantly Jews. With the 4,000, it's predominantly non-Jews. With the 5,000, it was five loaves and two fish. With the 4,000, it's seven loaves and a, a few fish. With the 5,000, they'd been with him for one day. With the 4,000, they'd been with him for three days. And if we will just keep reading... We'll get to it next week as we get into chapter 16. Jesus says to the disciples, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took? According to Jesus, it was two separate events. It's not a repeat of an earlier event. And so we close with verse 39. 
And he sent away the multitude, got into a boat, and he came now to the region of Magdalia. So what's being described now, he leaves this area of what we know as Jordan. He gets in a boat there on the south uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and now he goes across to the northwest corner. And what we're going to see as we begin next week, he, he sets his foot out of the boat, and there is just immediate contention. There is an immediate fight. There's immediate resistance. He's in non-Jewish territory, and everybody is embracing him. As soon, he, as soon as he comes back into the territory of his ancient people, there is immediate resistance. Now, what he was training these disciples is that, look, I'm interested in every human being. I'm interested in these people that you think are sick and twisted and dirty and they have no value before God. I am interested in everybody. And what he is training them in is that you and I are in no position to put somebody in a category of being unsavable. We do a weird thing a lot of times where we'll ask a friend or a coworker, hey, would you like to come to church with me? And we get a hard no. No, I don't want that. Get that Bible away from me. And we think, gee, they're far from salvation. And then we'll say to somebody else, hey, you want to come to men's group or ladies group? You want to go see a movie at church or whatever? And say, yeah, sure, whatever. And we think to ourselves, all right, they're close to salvation. A person's reaction to the gospel is never a clear indication of what the Spirit of God is priming them for, what the Spirit of God is at work doing. You look at the Apostle Paul. What was he doing five minutes before he became a Christian? He was breathing out threatenings against the church. He had arrest warrants in his hand to imprison Christians and yet the Lord apprehended him. Every person in your life is, is, you know, on the menu for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every person in your life, the Lord Jesus Christ is deeply interested in them. I'm reminded of Jeremiah, what he tells us in Lamentations 3. The unfailing love of the Lord, it never ends. By his mercies, we have been kept from complete destruction. And how many of us in here can say amen to that? But we've got to choose Christ. We've got to make the choice. His love is there, but he does not violate free will. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about when you go and you see a play, that when the play is finished, you have the actors. They come out, and everybody's clapping, giving standing ovation. Wonderful job that they did. And then they'll bring out the author of the play on the stage. And Lewis says, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. Well, God is going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying that you are on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us 
will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying that you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realize it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Have you chosen? Have you chosen the Lord Jesus Christ? God is giving you a chance to choose. He's brought you here this morning so that you can hear the glorious news that he loves you, but he's not going to violate your free will. Salvation is simple. Salvation is easy. Salvation is a gift. And what does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 10? Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You're a whosoever. I'm a whosoever. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you saved? Do you want to be saved? I pray that you don't allow yourself to leave here being guilty before God this morning. And again, I don't, I don't know all of you. I don't, I don't know where you're at. But I want to give you an opportunity to get right with the Lord. Now, I know what I'm asking you is difficult, but look, we're all family here. We're all family. And if you are interested in calling on the name of the Lord, if you want to say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ, I simply ask that you raise your hand and I'm going to pray for you this morning. You're here. You know you're not right with the Lord. You want to be made right. Just raise your hand. You're saying yes to the Lord. And I want to pray for you. Is there anybody you want to say yes to the Lord? For those of us who are the followers of Christ, you remember on the night of his betrayal that he took that bread and he took it. He ripped it. He tore it. And he said to the disciples, he said, this is my body that is ripped and torn for you. Here he was. He was taken to Golgotha, stripped him naked. They ripped him. They shredded him. He was turned into hamburger. Why? Well, Jesus said to the disciples, this is my body ripped and torn for you. Brothers and sisters, this bread is the authentic evidence of the love of God for you. The evidence of the love of God is not that he's given you a healthy body, not that he's given you a healthy bank account, not that he answers all of your wants and all of your prayers. This is the evidence that God loves you. This is my body ripped and torn for you. Listen to me, God loves you. And this is the evidence of that. Let's take and let's eat. And let's be reminded of his great love. And then you remember he took the cup and he said to the disciples, he said, this now is the cup of the new covenant. This is the new contract. This is the contract that God has made with us. We didn't sit down at the bargaining table and say to God, all right, if we do 
you know, A, B, and C, then you'll forgive us of our sin. We didn't, we didn't hammer this out. This is a contract that God has made with us. And the contract is, you place your trust in Christ, your sin and your iniquity, he remembers no more. Thank God. Thank God. The sin that you have committed, the sin you are committing, the sin you're going to commit in the future has all been washed away by the power of the blood of Christ. You trust in Christ, your sins and your iniquities. He remembers no more. Brothers and sisters, don't leave this place feeling dirty before God this morning. You are washed clean by a miracle of Christ. Let's take the cup and let's rejoice in our salvation. Father, we thank you for the wonderful story of the gospel of Christ. We thank you, Father, that salvation is of God. Salvation is not of us. You haven't asked us to simply produce our own salvation. You have asked us to do a very simple thing, humble ourselves and trust in the work of another. And Father, we thank you that you have worked and now you call upon us to worship. Help us, Father, this week to worship you every single day. And Lord, I, I would ask that if there's someone here, they're not right with you, Lord, would your spirit just bug them all week long? Father, may they find no rest until they find peace in Christ. Oh, how we thank you that you have blessed us. But we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.